This is Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. Welcome to Entheogen. We are very pleased to be joined by a special guest on video, Mitchell Gomez of dancesafe.org. Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us on Entheogen. Yeah, super, super happy to be on you guys, uh, your guys' podcast. We are, uh, we're all partaking in the uh, sanctioned uh, substance of caffeine cheers. here, I believe, coffee cheers, across cheers, the board, yeah, yeah. so cheers to you guys. Yep. <laughs> I, got, I got water. Okay. <laughs> Coffee, seven, coffee has water in it. It's seven That's o'clock true. at night where I am, you know? Like, Coffee's like nice. 99% water. That's true. That's true. Aren't yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I want to talk to you about that, Mitchell, and get your take on, on this concept, you know, of, um, of just the continuum of, of substances. You know, I, I sort of put like food uh, on the same continuum as, as substances. Um, you know, a lot of people make a distinction between like one substance or another or like natural substances versus chemical uh, substances or, or uh, synthesized substances. Um, you know, I mean, caffeine comes from various sources that are naturally occurring. Uh, it's extracted and, and refined and, and very strong in some cases. Um, and then, you know, you have uh, similar cases with with uh, other drugs like you could eat fruit that has sugar in it and it's delicious or you could like extract the sugar from things and have a you know a sugar high um what's your take on this because i i heard uh, an interview with you where you uh introduced this concept i'm not sure if you coined it of molecular agnosticism um, yeah i did actually coin that. equally nice <laughs> yeah I like, I like so, the term. so the 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 term that was coined by i believe i actually think it was dennis mckenna who coined the term pharmacochauvinism so this <laughs> idea that like my drugs are okay but your drugs are like dangerous scary and evil right, right? uh and so dennis coined this term of pharmacochauvinism and i realized there was no uh, par- uh there was no term for the opposite attitude sure. right so there was a term for this idea of like my drugs are fine but your drugs are bad but there was no opposite term and so molecular agnosticism is what i sort of settled on it's it's kind of a mouthful but you know that thing it is what it is uh yeah yeah, i I find the natural artificial distinction to be not super helpful for two reasons uh the first is that humans are bipedal primates we are part of this planet's uh natural ecosystems and anything we build in my mind is as natural as a beehive or a coral reef uh, or any other you know structure that's constructed by an animal uh on this planet and so I, i i don't think that thinking of us as somehow separate from nature and the things that we create are somehow fundamentally different than natural phenomenon is is a useful way of thinking about the ecology and our place within the the planet's uh, sort of natural ecosystems. But the second is that it's just not an accurate measurement of risk and reward, right? right? So people have this idea, oh, natural drugs are fine, synthetic drugs are dangerous. But, you know, one of the most common natural products anywhere in the environment is cyanide. Cyanide is found in a ton of different plants. It's found all over the planet. Uh, You know, very, very small doses of cyanide will kill a human being. Uh, And it's totally natural. I mean, it's completely, completely, completely natural substance. Uh, And then you have substances like LSD, where we have reports in the medical literature of people who found crystal LSD, thought it was cocaine, and snorted lines of it. Uh, And we we know from at least one of them, from his blood serum levels, that he probably snorted somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 doses of LSD, and he lived. Uh, He did require medical attention. That's actually a really important qualifier. He did actually go, he did require, I I believe, intubation. Uh, So he, he... there was something going on with his breathing, whether he might've just been holding his breath really, like, I don't know what happens at 7,000 doses of LSD, uh, right. either internally or pharmacologically, but we know it didn't kill him. Does anyone here know, Kevin, do you know by any chance what happens <laughs> at around 7,000? <laughs> I, I was going to say, and I have a bad rep, you know? Yeah. I've never gotten that far. Eh? You know, like... three, three to five is pretty much like my like holy grail, you know? <laughs> I, I, know I, I, I personally have spoken to probably dozens of people who've taken between 100 and 300 hits of LSD at a time. Wow. Uh, like that's a, that's a thing that people have done on a relatively regular basis. I don't know anyone who's suffered pharmacological 
psychological issues from doses that high. I'm not recommending it psychologically and, and behaviorally. There's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. you really want to have a strong person as a sitter, right? Like if you are physically out of physically control, strong. Yeah. you want somebody who's physically strong enough to stop you from hurting yourself. And I'm not saying people should do that. I'm just saying that people do. And we know that it doesn't, you know, result in deaths or hospitalizations. Uh, you know, it's a bit of an initiation within LSD distribution networks, this idea of thumbprinting, where you literally right. stick your thumb into the crystal LSD and then lick it. Uh, those are high doses, right? You've, you've visu visually, you can't see, you know, 20 or 30 hits of LSD is, is, is invisible as crystal, right? You can't see 20 or 30 doses. Uh, right. Even 100 is not a ton of, of powder in a, if you've ever seen crystal acid, I mean, a gram is 10,000 doses. So think about what a gram bag of cocaine looks like. That's 10,000 doses of LSD, if that was that baggy. Uh, and so, yeah, we this idea that like, oh, if it's natural, it's safe. And if it's artificial, it's not, is just demonstrably untrue like that's just not right. a true statement about drug risk uh, no and so i think it's really important to message that yeah and and so that's part of my issue with these decriminalized nature campaigns uh they've been doing a lot of really good work i'm really uh you know i know a lot of people involved i'm proud of the the gains they've been making uh, my concern is that it sets up a dichotomy within people's minds that natural drugs are okay and synthetic drugs are not mm. um they also tend to exclude things like cocaine and opium uh, both of which are naturally, you know, uh, cocaine in particular is a naturally occurring alkaloid within the coca plant. Coca plants have cocaine in them. It's not something that needs to be created from the base of the plant, right? It literally just needs to be taken out of the plant. Um, you know, to make it orally active or to make it smokable, you have to do, or to make it uh, uh, easily orally, you can just chew the plants, right? People chew the leaves all the time and that, that works as well. Um, and yeah, it's extracted from the plant for sale, but that's really just about prohibition. That's just about making it as strong as possible before you move it across an international border, right? Nobody mm. wants to be smuggling a shipping container full of coca leaves where right. they can just extract it down into cocaine and then smuggle the cocaine. Yeah. Uh, without point. prohibition, I think coca leaves would be tremendously popular. I think you'd yeah. get them at Whole Foods, right? We could have fair trade organic coca leaves at Whole Foods. Totally. Like it would be wildly overpriced. Uh yeah, if we if we think coffee is uh, you know responsible for the sort of like level of productivity in society, can you imagine if people were drinking like coca tea at work? Sure. I mean, it's it's, it's super common it, in Peru. It's super yeah, common exactly. in Peru, Belize, uh, uh, Brazil. I mean, all throughout you know Central and South America, coca tea is a very. It's actually I have a, a baggie that's a Nestle brand <laughs> coca tea. Right, because international corporations can manufacture something in one country that would be illegal in another, sure. and so coca tea is made by like major international companies. They just can't right. sell it in the United States. Right. Yeah, and so I don't know. I think the fact that the decriminalized nature campaigns don't want to talk about you know poppy straw, they don't want to talk about cocaine is also a little bit concerning, right? Like if yeah. you're gonna create the divide, if you're gonna create the, the line in the sand that says natural's okay and synthetic isn't, then let's decriminalize nature, right? Let's legalize cocaine, let's legalize uh, morphine. Like let's honestly have a conversation about this because realistically, I think that if you really wanna end opiate deaths in the United States, you could do a lot worse than just blanket legalizing opium. Right, it's hard to smoke enough opium to physically kill yourself. Not impossible, but it's certainly not like you know doing IM or IV, you know, synthetic opiates. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if people are becoming horribly addicted to, or I, we're trying to move away from that addiction language, it's so hard, to it's so easy to slip into that language. But if people are developing, you know, physiological dependence on synthetic opiates like fentanyl and carfentanil, where you know being off by like you know a tiny fraction of a milligram is enough to kill you. Uh, you know, legalizing opium so that people could just buy it at the store, smoke it at home. It, it hits the same receptor complexes. It's physiologically much safer. We could literally do it organically. And it's right. super cheap, right? Uh, people have this idea that opiates are really expensive, but they're only expensive because every person moving them is risking the rest of their life in, in prison. Right. And so they want to get paid. Uh, somebody I know did the math on this once. And if you made sugar producers pay for their externalities, pay for the pollution that they just pump into the Everglades, hmm. uh, refined sugar is more expensive to manufacture on a material resource basis than opium is, wow. right? Opium poppies grow in rocky soil with no watering. 
north of New Mexico in particular, climatologically would be perfect. Like we could have massive poppy plantations in New Mexico. Uh, and you literally just score the poppy pod and it produces opium. It's a very low impact, very ecologically sort of non-destructive uh, process, whereas making refined sugar is filthy. I mean, it's a really, right. really dirty process. And so people who say, oh, you can't legalize opium because people would get addicted and they'd be robbing you to get their fix. It's like, we're talking about a fraction of a penny for a day's supply. Like nobody's robbing anybody for this stuff. I mean, it's, you know, and anybody who lives in the desert Southwest can just do it in their backyard. And, you know, what, hey, what Mitchell, do you think makes, oh, sorry, Brad, go ahead. Sorry, Joe. Um, I was, something you said in there, Caught, caught my ear that I just wanted to see if you could elaborate on. Uh, I'm a bil big believer in the importance of language and the words we use matters. Uh, tell me more about moving away from the term addiction versus other ways of talking about it. Yeah, so within harm reduction, there's been this movement to uh, not uh, reproduce the language that sort of creates a dichotomy between quote unquote recreational drug users and quote unquote addicts. So this is not actually how uh, either biological or psychological dependency works. It's not like there's a switch that flips and now suddenly you've gone from being a recreational drug user to an addict. Uh, there's a continuum of substance use. There's a continuum of potential repercussions from that substance use. Uh, you know, more and more people are talking about that, you know, there really isn't as much of a difference between physiological and psychological dependence as we used to believe, that a lot of what we think of as physiological dependence is actually psychological, right? Our brains are so much a part of our bodies that teasing that apart is not really useful. Uh, and it also just stigmatizes the users, right? I don't want people to think, oh, now I'm an addict. My life is over. I'm going to be addicted. This is my, you know, the 12-step program has this idea that, like, you have to give up all of your, you have to believe in this higher power that's the only thing that can save you. And it's like, no, this is not how drug use works. Uh, if your drug use has become problematic, it's very easy to address it in a practical you know, harm reduction way, figure out how to reduce the risks of your use, figure out if you want to reduce the use of a substance, you can figure out how to do that in a way that does not always require stopping all use. Um, you know, I know people who had a very serious physiological dependence to heroin for years and years and years uh, who still occasionally use and that use no longer impacts their life in the way it used to, right? You know, maybe once or twice a month, they'll get a little bit of some opiate, they'll use it and that's it. They don't, they're not, they're working jobs, they're not, you know, out robbing, you know, they're not having any of the behavioral issues they used to have. Uh, and so language matters, right? So we shouldn't think of recreational use and addiction as like two separate things. There's just substance use and there's different risks and different rewards for that use. Uh, that doesn't mean that smoking pot is the same thing as doing IV heroin. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that. Uh, it just means that it's not a useful framework to think of all IV heroin use as problematic, as addiction. Uh, even the DEA, if you look at the DEA statistics, they no longer release these statistics, but you can look at their old data. Uh, and the old data says uh, that somewhere between 70 and 80% of opiate users do not meet the DSM criteria for problematic substance use disorder. Hmm. So the vast majority of even heroin users don't meet the medical criteria for addiction. They are recreational heroin users. Uh, but we don't talk about it that way, right? Because the only people you see as opiate users are that small fraction of users who are having issues with their substance use. Uh, in general, right? There's been very little room for nuance in this. Uh, sure. In this um, yeah, nuance is hard when that small percentage is so visible. Is is the problems Scary. are there's yeah. So most people very terrifying, right? The the uh, HIV crisis certainly did not help the stigma against you know needle uh, drug use. And part of the reason we don't see it is that even within really heavy drug using populations, opiates are still really stigmatized, right? People who would snort ketamine with a complete stranger off of their cell phone on a dance floor won't tell their, you know, their wife or their best friend that they're using opiates. Uh, and so we have this like bubble of uh, users who are just completely invisible in the conversation. And I know this because of doing dance safe and events. You know, we do on-site drug checking at lots of events. I've been doing it for many, many years. I have literally never had anyone bring heroin to the booth to test, ever. I've never personally had that happen. Uh, we have a handful of chapters where it's happened, but like personally, out of all the time I've been in the booth, 
literally hundreds of hours of doing drug checking. I've never had anyone bring me opiates. But we know from those, uh, some festivals will have drug amnesty boxes where before security, you can put your drugs into this box uh, and you won't get in trouble for it. And they run drug analysis on those boxes. And I know some of the people who own the companies that do this. And I know that all the time they have prescription opiates, heroin, uh, all the time in the drug amnesty boxes, they have opiates. And at the dance aid booth, we never see them. And these are the same parties. <laughs> so we know that, that taboo, even, right? and we're the drug yeah. nerds, right? It's not like we're, it's not like we're like going to say yeah. anything negative about a person bringing us opiates. Like we're the, we're the, you know, we're the drug nerds and like, they still won't talk to us about it. So yeah, we just know that it's happening at festivals, but it's super stigmatized. Uh, and like, yeah, I, I do. I want to destigmatize even that type of drug use. Uh, not because I'm encouraging anyone to do it. Uh, I've personally lost friends to, to the opiate crisis, uh, people I, I care deeply about. Uh, they're not drugs I am particularly into. The reason I want to destigmatize it is because the only way to provide public health information, public health services, is if you know what drugs people are taking, you know how they're taking them, if they're willing to talk to you about them, if they're willing to talk to their friends about them. Uh, because opiate overdoses are incredibly scary, but very easy to deal with if there's somebody there who knows how to deal with them and has the proper tools, right? If somebody has Narcan and they're in the tent with you, an opiate overdose is very unlikely to kill you. Uh, but because people won't talk to even their best friend about their opiate use, they use alone more often. Uh, and because they use alone more often, it creates this feedback cycle where we have more deaths, which further stigmatizes the drug use, which results in more deaths, which stigmatizes. And it's this really negative downward spiral that has now landed us in a point where for our age bracket, for people under the age of you know 45, uh, opiate deaths are now the leading cause of death in almost every state. Um, more than gun deaths, more than car accidents, more, more than anything. It's the leading cause of death, I, I believe, in 40, like 46 states or something. Uh, and that's horrifying. I mean, that's horrifying. These are very easy to solve problems, and they're yeah. killing, you know, 70,000, 80,000 people. What's, what's your, how does law enforcement, in, in your experience, uh, sort of react to that when you, when, I mean, I'm sure there's a, the first, you know, reaction, but it, just in general, what's your experience been with law enforcement on this? Uh, you know, harm reduction is no longer controversial with law enforcement. Uh, it was for a long time. Uh, we are now at a place where needle exchanges in many places are funded by taxpayer dollars. Uh, so we have taxpayer dollars that are going to give out clean needles to, you know, IV and IM substance users. Uh, the police know about the needle exchanges, right? They have to because of the sort of legal structure of the needle exchange. They have to know that people going in here are allowed to be carrying these things that are ostensibly drug paraphernalia in many states. And so the conversation has really changed. And weirdly, the opiate crisis has changed it even more, particularly around drug checking. Right. So at first I was really convinced that we would never have an accurate way of testing for fentanyl. Uh, it's so powerful, a, a, you know, a, a potentially fatal dose for a non-opiate user might be a milligram. So one one thousandth of a gram bag of if your cocaine is one one thousandth fentanyl, it could kill you. And we heard that people were using these fentanyl urine strips to test their drugs for fentanyl. Uh, and I was so deeply skeptical of that being a, a way of actually getting these positive results uh, that we agreed to do a study and to help fund a study looking at this. Uh, so we found a university that had a DEA Schedule One handling license. They're legally able to handle scheduled drugs. Uh, bought a bunch of heroin and fentanyl legally, which is a very bizarre thing. Uh, you don't even put in your address. You just put in the DEA license number and it goes to that address, which is how they avoid anyone being able to get their hands on it. I never had a does point the, where I like... Does the DEA use Bitcoin? Oh, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> this is on credit cards. Uh, yeah, heroin on credit card. Very strange situation. Uh, very expensive. These reference samples are fantastically expensive. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times more expensive than it would have been to just like go buy some heroin. Um, and yeah, the strips actually work really, really well. And uh, that study that we did is getting published in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's in peer review. 
Uh, other studies have been done that looked at users actually using the strips, uh, and it shows that people who use these strips and get a positive result for fentanyl uh, are more likely to either throw away their drugs, use with a friend, or use less. So all three of those things are things which reduce the risk of uh, a potentially fatal opioid overdose, although overdose isn't really the term, right? It's a, a misrepresentation death. Uh, and now we have in California, uh, needle exchanges are using taxpayer money to buy fentanyl testing strips to give them out at needle exchanges, right? So we now have drug checking being funded ostensibly. It's not direct drug checking services. It's not bring your drugs here and we'll chemically analyze them, which is what we should be doing. Uh, but we do have taxpayer money now going to give out uh, what is ostensibly drug paraphernalia in many yeah. states. It's a productive step in the right direction. It's a huge, huge, huge step. Now, do we occasionally run into cops who are philosophically opposed to harm reduction? Yeah, for sure. Like, for sure that happens. Prohibition itself is an anti-harm reduction uh, model of dealing with drugs. Uh, the head of the DEA, I believe it was under either the first or second Bush administration, uh, said in open congressional testimony, the goal of the DEA is to make drug use so dangerous that only a crazy person would do it. Right, so that's a, a harm wow. maximization policy. That's the policy of the DEA is to maximize the harm of drug use. They can't say it out loud anymore. <laughs> right. And in some ways, that's a positive step, right? When you're embarrassed to explain your position, your position is failing. Uh, I am not embarrassed to say that I want to make drug use as safe as possible for those who already engage in it. I am very, very proud to say that. I say it on Fox News. I say it on CNN. And the fact that the, the enforcement agencies have to intentionally mislead about their goals now, I think is a positive thing because it means that they're, if not embarrassed, they are at least aware that the political winds have shifted so much that they can no longer say these things. You know, they used to like fly over cocaine plantations and spray, you know, uh, Paraquat and other like really powerful industrial herbicides to poison the cocaine supply. They used to take out newspaper ads bragging that they were doing this. Wow. They can't do that anymore. And that's great. That's great that they can't do that anymore. Yeah. But what we really need is a, a truth and reconciliation commission around the drug war. <laughs> right. Right. And exactly. so that's the direction we have to be heading. Well, what, what do you think about like the, uh, you know, the, the next phase and the phase after that of, of transforming the, the drug war basically, or, I mean, is it, a, is it a matter of like systematically dismantling this apparatus of like enforcement? Um, because basically the entire thing is founded on this misguided principle of like prohibition, which clearly doesn't work and all the side effects of that. What, I mean, what do you do with the fact that there are these perverse incentive structures where basically like the cops, yeah. uh, broadly speaking, like really need that, that infrastructure to exist to justify their, their jobs basically. So how, how, yeah. do you, how do you put a wedge in that? So the police, I don't think are too much of a problem. Um, there is enough crime that we can justify existing budgets uh, and existing uh, uh, personnel numbers without the drug war. Right. So they can, can actually can, solve crime. They can solve, you, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits rather than right. testing bags of cocaine on the side of the road with your shitty ass nick kits that give false positives. Why not actually test all the rape kits that we have instead and use the money for that. Right. So, so basically making drug enforcement, like the lowest priority, as we've seen happen in certain jurisdictions um, that, that can start to, to shift the, the, the structure a little bit. Yeah, I think that's step one or a step. Uh, I actually do not think decriminalization is enough. Uh, drug misrepresentation, which is what's really causing all these deaths, what Dansafe spends most of its time doing, uh, that is not solved by decriminalization. In order to solve that problem, what we really need is a legal regulated drug distribution structure. Uh, I don't think it should be done for profit. I think we should definitely require that these be 501c3 or B Corp or government agency processes. Mm -hmm. um, but what we need is when you go into the store and you buy 2% milk, you know for sure it's 2% milk, right? Because it's gone through a million regulatory examinations. We know what we know what cows the milk came from, right? You can scan the barcode and people within the government have the ability to know what store that bottle was sold at, what truck brought it to that store, what uh, bottling plant modeled it, where 
the cows live, what the cows eat, where the grain was grown, right? They can do all of that. I mean, almost instantaneously. And that's what I'd like to see for drug distribution is that level of regulation, right? I want QR codes on the back of the fucking asset that you can scan that will tell you the date of manufacturing, location of manufacturing, the number of micrograms per dose, right? Like that's the level of control that we need. And, and who I am. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. A Remind me my name again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can do some programming. Yeah, some custom programming for when you're once you're on the LSD. Yeah. I, lo um, I love the idea of finding the manufacturer, not not to like not to like arrest them and throw them in jail, yeah. but, but to say like it wasn't strong enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I have some complaints about this this LSD that was manufactured, exactly. right? I think your distributor has been keeping it too warm. Uh no, I mean I think that uh and for drugs like acid, it's it's you know, it's important but kind of funny uh because you know there are things that get misrepresented as lsd that occasionally kill people but they're rare they're uncommon and they're easy to test for at home right so like 2,5-IN bomb is a, a a drug that kills a lot of people it also literally tastes like battery acid and so like as soon as you put the hit of acid on your tongue if you know that lsd is not supposed to taste like you're sucking on a nine volt uh, you know that there's something wrong, right? Uh, people often describe LSD as tasteless. That's actually not entirely true. There is a very sort of slight bitter taste. Metallic. It's metallic. metallic. Taste, it's almost like, right? but it's almost like a memory of a taste. It's it's somewhere between yeah. taste and it's something that a lot of people don't experience. But people who've used a lot of LSD over their lifetime start to recognize this like very faint like memory of copper sensation like e e ego cringe I ego cringe ego yeah cringe, you know like, like yeah uh, your brain uh, stem starts to twitch like, a little bit yeah, yeah. Um, something the something knows what's up yeah right. but this is two five i is not like that it's not this like faint it's it really is an awful bitter very strong mm -hmm. taste uh you know the doi and the do the dox compounds also have a pretty distinct taste uh they're easy to test for at home with just an Erlix reagent so you can just test at home and see that it's an indole uh the drugs like that, drugs like psilocybin, LSD, uh, marijuana, those can actually stay illegal longer without it killing more people because it's easy to mitigate the harms of. The drugs that we should be focusing on legalizing are the drugs that are killing the most people right? Heroin should be first. That's the drug that we need the control over because it's so intrinsically potentially problematic that as soon as you put it in the hands of the black market, it becomes this like national health crisis, right? Pot was broadly popular and very illegal for a very long time. And the people whose lives were ruined were people who got caught, right? It was the people who went to jail. Those are the lives that were ruined. Opiates, because of their sort of intrinsic potential problems, uh, those are the ones that we need to legalize first. Those are the ones that we need the most control over, the most regulation on. Uh, is, it, is it true that more people die from legally produced opiates than black market opiates? No, that hasn't been true for a long time. Okay. Uh, there, there was a window of time where that was the case. Uh, the problem is the solution to that was they cracked down on doctors prescribing opiates, right? Which cut off the supply of legally produced opiates. Uh, street heroin is so much cheaper that people switched over to heroin. And that was what directly resulted in the current opiate crisis. What we should have done when that was happening is had a national conversation about why we have so many people using opiates, right? Uh, we know that economic despair uh, and childhood trauma, particularly combined, right? When people have really like fucked up childhoods and then they have no sort of chance of escaping their economic and social situations results in a lot of people using opiates. Uh, the solution to that is not to cut down on the legal opiates and then to have these people turn to heroin. The solution to that is to address the economic situations that are resulting in them feeling so hopeless, to fully fund childhood education, childhood, childhood health services, to get really, really serious about educating parents about how to raise their children. But we didn't do any of that. We just said, oh, we're gonna arrest all the doctors who are, who are quote unquote over-prescribing opiates. Uh, some of them for sure were abusing the system, but even that is just like, the solution to that is not to criminalize that, it's to yeah. address the root causes of people feeling so hopeless that they would just rather spend their entire day, you know, really, yeah. really, really high on opiates. Another thing you mentioned very quickly in passing amongst a lot of like 
I, I'm going to have to re-listen to Yeah, I do this. this. I do that. <laughs> there's just so much to unpack. Like there's really a lot here and it's really enlightening just to hear you talk about this so naturally. Like, of course, you know, yet for me, it's just like light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. Um, one of the things you said that I was like, huh, like to extend uh, regulation. I, what you're you saying is like to full currently legal drugs to make them legal would require regulation. And you said they should be nonprofits. I was like, why aren't all pharmaceutical companies nonprofits? Well, they were. I mean, there was a time in this country when that was a requirement. Uh, and when that changed is when our healthcare system really started to collapse. I think it was the late 1970s, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but there was a time when that was a requirement, when anybody manufacturing uh, drugs in this country had to be a nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, and we could change it back, right? We could do that. Uh, the problem is the lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry uh, could probably outspend us, what, 10,000 sure. to one, 100,000 to one? Yeah. Um, now, money doesn't always win at the end of the day, right? There are times when all of the people with money wanted the legal structure to go one direction, and it went the other direction because of a really broad populist movement to do that. Uh, I feel like that gets a little harder every year. Uh, every year, elections get a little more expensive. Uh, every year, people who are running for office need more money. A lot of our old systems seem to be breaking down, like right now, like right now they seem to be breaking down. Uh, one of the systems that needs to break down is privately funded elections, right? There are countries where when you run for office, everybody gets a block of money from the taxpayer to run for office that has to be used on the election. And no more money than that can be used on the election. And they're tiny amounts of money. I mean, yeah. most, most low, like state level house elections in the United States spend more than presidential elections in some other countries. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. I, I live in Spain and there's uh, there, literally the presidential campaign is like one month before the election. <laughs> and I would like the first time I was here for president, I was like, what the fuck is this? Are you serious? Like it just, like one month before, five debates, bunch of information, and then everyone votes. Yeah, so I'm a dual citizen with Portugal, and Portugal's the same way, right? Where it's like, it's it's a few weeks, a few hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> like, well, Portugal's a fantastic example because they have really cool progressive uh, drug reform as well. Yeah, uh, progressive, not progressive enough. Uh, yeah, I, I th yeah, Again, we need to we need regulated access, uh, right? In Portugal. Uh, Opiates are relatively available and relatively inexpensive. Stimulants are wildly expensive. And so you have some of the crime that comes with expensive drugs when people really like stimulants. Um, you also have a lot of people who come from other countries to Portugal and Spain who like cocaine and they end up switching to smoking crack because uh, cocaine is so expensive in these countries. I mean, just think of the distribution chain from Colombia to Portugal, right? That's a long, physically, it's a long way to move your cocaine, a lot of water, a lot of, lot of borders. Uh, and so people switch to smoking crack because it's just more bang for your dollar. Yeah. Uh, and so what we need is, you know, the cocaine store where you can just walk in and buy organic fair trade cocaine. And then that problem sort of goes away. Uh, and presidents of Pompeo, the president who uh, pushed for the decriminalization of all drugs in Portugal, uh, has spoken very openly about the fact that they didn't go far enough. Yeah. You know, this was, he said it, the way he phrased it, he was, he spoke at uh, the uh, International Harm Reduction Conference. It was in Porto last year and he was the keynote speaker uh, and I got to meet him. It was awesome. You know, this, this president wow. who did the big thing. Uh, yeah, I bought a new custom tailored suit, walked right past presidential security. It's amazing what a nice suit <laughs> Nice. <laughs> in a country like Portugal where nobody really wants to hurt their politicians, right? That, that helps too. Uh, but yeah, no, no I mean, he speaks, he, right. Yeah. Every, 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 people are just, it's, people are too, it's too busy napping in Portugal. People nap in Portugal, like as a part of a national culture. So, um, but no, I, I, he speaks very openly about the fact that full decriminalization is not enough to address the root of these problems. Uh, it really isn't. We have the data now. It reduces a lot of the problems, right? We have probably had more people in the United States die from opiates 
during this conversation that died from opiates last year in Portugal. That's almost certainly true. I'd have to work out how long we've been on the phone and do the math, but like that's almost certainly a true statement. And that's a hell of a statement. I mean, that's really a, a testament to how much decriminalization can do. Uh, they have mobile vans where you can get uh, methadone. So if you are, uh, you know, opioid dependent, they have a way that you can access that. But people on methadone still like heroin sometimes. And so there's still people who are out there looking for heroin. And as long as there's people out there looking for it, it develops a black market. Black markets intrinsically attract the most violent actors because anybody who's not a violent actor is pushed out by those who are. Uh, you know, these cartel deaths in in the United States and in Mexico are a direct parallel to the Chicago gangs that were shooting each other in the 1960s or not 1960s, sorry, 1930s, right? Direct parallel. It's the exact same thing. It's yeah. you create a black market. There's massive amounts of money. You can't call the police when you have a business dispute. And so we know the solution. When is the last time the head of a craft beer company murdered the head of another craft beer company, right? <laughs> like when's the last time that happened? It's like, well, 1933, right? 1933 is the last, like, that's the last time that happened. So, how, how is it that we've come so far and haven't learned that lesson yet? I mean, I, I wonder, like, are there any key takeaways that, that we can bring to our peers, that our listeners can, can, can really, like, remember top of mind from this conversation to think, uh, you know, it's one thing to paint a picture of, like, a cocaine store. And, you know, in, in the drug geek business, we, we look at yeah. that and, and, and we see that that's actually not only, um, you know, with a smirk of a funny idea, but actually something that would be uh, almost, like, symptomatic of a solved problem. Sure. Uh, but, but, like, introducing an idea like that to people who are just very much in their, like, prohibition mindset even, or yeah. who understand the, the difficulties, but, like, and, and maybe thinking about new new solutions, uh, it's still hard to envision how we get from here to there and why that would be better. Like, are there key things that we can we can bring? To yeah. So part of the reason I'm so vocal about my solutions is I know that they're politically unpalatable, right? I deeply believe them. I truly believe we should open a cocaine store. Uh, I also know that it pushes the conversation to have public voices out there saying that so that we can start moving in the right direction. Um, I recognize that we are unlikely to see uh, cocaine and heroin stores on the streets of American cities in the next like 15 or 20 years. I recognize that that is incredibly unlikely. Uh, change also happens fast sometimes, right? The thing that really ended alcohol prohibition wasn't the populist movement to end it, it was the Great Depression. The government simply could not afford to enforce policies that were counterproductive uh, during the Depression. Uh, I think it's very likely we're heading into another long economic downturn. Um, I think that's an uh, incredibly likely outcome of not only the first wave of COVID, but if you've looked at the infection data over the last few days, we are now seeing the spike from Memorial Day. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be seeing the spike from uh, mass protest movements. Uh, I think protests are something that's worth risking COVID for. I've personally been attending Denver protests. I, I've you know, been doing direct action for God. 19 years now I've been going to protests. I'm not going to stop because of a pandemic. I'll wear my mask. I'll be safe, but like, I'm still going to go. The reality is there's going to be infections from that, right? And, and uh, we never really shut down hard enough to even stop the first wave. We didn't even really get the classic first wave with a trough. It was really starting to plateau and now we're seeing Memorial Day and then we're going to see protests. We may be heading into another five to 10 year depression. Uh, there's a quote from Game of Thrones, this idea that chaos is a ladder, right? Historically, that is just very, very true. When there are periods of economic stability, you can occasionally move things in the sort of more progressive direction. Can, all right? Not, not, not will, can. I think the way to message this to people is really through a constant, relentless, campaign that explains that the harms that people associate with drugs are almost always harms created by drug prohibition, right? The, the anti-drug commercials in this country that our taxes are forcibly extracted to show us, right? They take our money at gunpoint and then use it to propagandize the American people. Those commercials have never been shown to reduce rates of drug use, ever. What they do is frame the conversation. They, they create a public uh, worldview around 
substances that associates the substances themselves with the harms that we are being told, right? People are dying from heroin because heroin is evil. Well, no, people are dying from opiates, not even heroin anymore, right? So it's literally not even, a lot of times the heroin isn't, it doesn't have any heroin at all now. It's, it's just fentanyl and carfentanil and whatever else happens to be in there. Heroin is not any more intrinsically dangerous than plenty of things we do as a society legally, right? Uh, Jag Davies, uh, I don't know if you guys know who Jag is. He was with MAPS for a long time and did stuff with DPA for a long time. Uh, he wrote a paper in college. I went to I went to New College with Jag. I've known him since we were you know children at college. Uh, he wrote a paper looking at the comparative uh, risks of various activities. You know, an hour of driving, how likely is that to result in hospitalization? An hour of horseback riding, an hour of using MDMA, an hour. Uh, MDMA use in particular was like not in the top like 90% or something. I mean, it was like MDMA use at a proper dose in a proper context is a very, very, very physiologically not dangerous drug. Oh man, this seems like such a great resource for, what was it in, I think it was Stealing Fire, the whole last chapter was about hedonic calendaring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> assessing, you know, your investment in these activities sure. with like the, the risk and reward, like this this needs an appendix somewhere. Yeah, and, and but I mean, the, one of the most dangerous things we do in terms of risk of hospitalization is cheerleading. Uh, I think it was number one. That's number why one I stopped. Most, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure, same. Yeah, the tumbling <laughs> gets gets hard when you. Uh, but no, I mean, it's it's a it's a very dangerous thing to to cheerlead. People go to the hospital all the time. Uh, I was really hoping he would title the. I really thought the title of the article should have been "Give Me an E." I, it said that nice. in there somewhere. Or he said it verbally, but like, no, it's it's the 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 risk analysis compared to the legal analysis is just schizophrenic. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely disconnected from reality. If you look at the risks of drug use and how we treat drug use legally, uh, there is like virtually no connection there. You know, there's that footage of, uh, he's now the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, but at the time he was in the House of the Senate, I forget what, uh, I think the House, uh, grilling the head of the DEA, asking her over and over and over again, is marijuana, a Schedule One drug, more or less dangerous than heroin? Hmm. Another Schedule One drug. Is it more or less dangerous? Over and over and over again. And she sits there, oh, both of them have risks. Both of them are dangerous. Because legally, as part of running the DEA, you cannot say that one Schedule One drug is less dangerous than another. Right? That you have to maintain the party line. That is part of your job. All Schedule One drugs are Schedule One drugs. They are equally dangerous. They're equally addictive. They're equal. And it's like everyone knows that that's just complete fucking nonsense, right? Like universally, you. I, I don't think there's a single anti-drug person in the country today who is out there still saying unironically that marijuana is as dangerous as heroin right well what what do you Still think like perpetuates this is it the gateway drug you know mythology or i mean it, it seems like such a i mean it's a few hundred billion dollars a year yeah yeah right it's it, enforcement it's budgets yeah. it's amazing that that hasn't been litigated yet the fact that like you have marijuana being a schedule one drug with like it theoretically no medicinal value while it's legally a medicine in yeah I mean, it's almost half the states now right it's crazy. Well, the problem is that medicine to the federal government means has gone through FDA approval. Mm -hmm. That's all it means. So a state declaring that something is medicine means nothing federally. Right. Uh, and getting marijuana through the FDA approval process when the National Institute on Drug Abuse is the one who controls the federal supply, the supply of marijuana right. available for medicine. Right is very very hard right yeah. it's you should never put cops in charge of research period you should also <laughs> never give them legislation power right the dea can emergency schedule they can literally by fiat declare a drug to be illegal right. uh this is a fundamental violation of the separation of powers as written in the constitution it's complete nonsense it should be stripped away from the dea top to bottom but that's a big fight. Yeah. Can, I, I can, also, we, can I we go? Oh, sorry, Kev, go ahead. No, no, I say, I always wonder, it's almost like, I feel like when it comes to the human being level of, of um, sort of, you know, changing people's minds or at least getting them to consider the other side, it's almost like 
all the research and stats, whatever, that kind of goes over people's heads in some way. And it's like they need powerful stories to in, of yeah. individuals to convince them. However, right. when it comes to the government side, it's almost like, I almost feel like it's like if we don't frame the conversation in terms of like markets and yeah. resource allocation in terms of, you know, if we think about like the the potential productivity of a country and the actual productivity, it's like there's a massive gap there. And it's because we lose all these people along the way to so dumb things. Right. What's the, what's the, economic, what's the economic cost of losing 70,000 young productive taxpayers a year? Yeah. Right, and and also well, paying for them to be in jail and not be yeah. not work. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, part part of this is the recognition that government doesn't exist. Right, people exist. The government is just made up of its collective people. Uh, there is legislative inertia. There's you know programs that are running that you have to sort of. It's hard to wind them down. But ultimately, there are individuals making these decisions every day. Every day, they are choosing to continue to enforce these systems. I think explaining to the government, I don't think the person who runs the DEA thinks that drug prohibition works, like in any meaningful sense. Mm. I don't think most of the DEA agents enforcing prohibition think that it works in any meaningful sense. I think that they are uh, falling into that... Uh, that psychological phenomenon of just enforcing the rules, right? This is a yeah, job. It's a morality of issue, right? It's like, it doesn't matter if it works. It's the right thing to do. Well, well right. there's also an assumption that, that they're the good guys and the sure. people who use drugs are the bad yeah. guys. And sure. so it's just really easy to follow that storyline, you know, as, as But God knows plenty of them fight. use drugs, right? I mean, if we start yeah. steroid testing all of our federal law enforcement officials, we're going to be out of federal law enforcement officials right quick. Uh, and I'm not a huge fan of random drug testing for, for jobs, but if you're allowed to drive a tank, I'm pretty okay with random drug testing i'm not gonna lie on that um no i mean i think i think uh what we need is a, a counter propaganda campaign to counter the dea budget that goes towards quote-unquote drug education hmm. right um and part of that is even linguistic they're very very good at discussing things in a way that reinforces the existing narrative uh the greatest example of that is the fact that they call drug prohibition drug control Drug prohibition is not drug control. It is the abdication of control of the drugs to criminal black markets. It's literally giving up all of the control. That's what prohibition is. Right. Drug control is QR codes on your acid, right? That's drug control. Um, you know, when you go to a store and buy 3.5% beer, the fact that you can know with enough certainty to literally bet your life on it, that it's within 0.2 in either direction, Right, because of the level of regulation over alcohol production in this country, that's drug control. Mm. Uh, the fact that they have convinced us all to call whatever we're doing drug control is really astonishing. I mean, it's really I, I can I can recommend I, or I can I can uh, recognize a well played game even if I disagree with the person playing it. Uh, and they're very, very good at discussing drugs in this way. I mean, they are super professional at this. Uh, Anslinger, the first head of the sort of narcotics control board, the architect of the drug war, uh, he recognized from the very, very beginning that this was going to be a war of, that uh, was going to be won through propaganda, right? It was going to be a war that had to be fought uh, through the public perception of drugs, which is why he... Uh, you know, when he found out that Judy Garland was uh, dependent on opiates, she was very quietly, very privately sent to rehab. But when he found out that jazz musicians, you know, African-American, Deep South jazz musicians who had a white girlfriend, you know, when he found out those guys were using opiates, I mean, they would send in the, the frickin', I mean, the first militarized police, right? I mean, these guys who were originally enforcing alcohol prohibition, they had the Gatling guns. I mean, it was like sending in the army, right? I mean, he'd send all he could to throw these guys in jail because he wanted the public perception of drug use to be, Make oh, it's degenerate, right? Yeah, it's he yeah. who's tying into those racial biases and right. it's people who like this degenerate music and it's, it's you know, African-Americans and, and Hispanics who are, you know, getting strung out and, and the, the women now want to have sex with them because they're so high. Like, he really was very good <laughs> at this, this propagandizing. I really want to create a poster 
that's the same bullshit drug story about like 20 different drugs because they tend to recycle Anslinger's propaganda. Uh, the idea that drugs will make you sexually violent, that they'll make you want to eat people, um, <laughs> that they make you uh, not care about your children. There's very specific propaganda that gets reused for different drugs. Um, you know, the guy who was supposedly on bath salts, uh, you know, they, they claimed he was on APVP, who was like biting a dude's face in Florida and it turned into like the whole bath salt zombie thing. Mm. His toxicology report came back negative. He had no drugs in his system at all. Right. But the, 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 uh, he had very low levels of THC. He'd probably smoked pot like five or six days before. Uh, he was mentally ill. He was somebody who had psychological problems. But man, the follow-up to that story never gets quite as much news as the original story, right? The problem is like when you when you like assert the control of the story from such an early time, it's really hard to uh, to counter that. I mean, we, we see the same thing in every level of politics, and I think when when you like, it, it's up to us to come come back against that and say, uh, no, you guys don't understand. Um, drugs can be really good, that drugs can be really helpful. We're on the defensive though. I mean, how do we, how do we like assert control of the story again and, and really, uh, you know, it, really it's fundamentally the size of the country, right? Like I, I, I do feel like that a lot. I feel like the only way something like marijuana could happen was that it happened at a state level. It's like the, 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 the bunker, the, the ship of the United States is so slow to turn on anything, you know, it's like it takes a state, a local level movement to, you know, to, like what did Obama call the states, the laboratory of democracy? It takes. Oh, did Lewis Mitchell? Oh yeah, it looks like it. Let him dial back in. Let me see here. Hey, hey, hey can you guys Mitchell. hear me again? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey. Uh, sorry about that. So I'm actually, I actually am tethered through my phone now using my phone hotspot. So we'll see how cool. that goes. Okay. Uh, all right, let's try video again. Perfect. Which means cool, all of my neighbors are. are now seeing a hotspot network called DEA surveillance bands. Nice. <laughs> I mostly use it at festivals. Well, I mostly use it at festivals, and I like to remind people that they're not alone at the party. <laughs> nice, good, good one, good one. Yeah. So we should. Um, we we're getting ready to wrap up soon. I think we're uh, nearing an hour. Um, so uh, let's dive right back into it, and, yeah. and I'll just do a quick, you know, hard edit point there. Um. So uh, as we as we near the uh, the hour mark here and we wrap up, Mitchell, I just wanted to ask you um, two two things. Do you have any um, you know positive success stories of maybe harm reduction modeling that that works or things we can just really take away from this? And then also anything you wanted to say about Dance Safe and, and your work uh, with with the organization? Yeah. So I think one of the things I wanted to say is that I think we have a really unique now uh, to help push the messaging that the drug war has been one of the primary tools used by law enforcement to target minority communities, right? If you're really serious about ending police abuse, if you're really serious about replacing of, uh, you know, African-American and Hispanic communities, uh, you could do a lot worse than ending the drug war. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean setting up drug stores. I think the step we should be aiming for is of criminal enforcement for personal possession, right? It's those low-level drug offenses that are disproportionately targeted on minority communities. Um, you know, uh, uh, Hari in Chasing the Scream breaks this down really well. Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow breaks it down really well that there are more white people who use drugs in the United States than there are African-Americans or Hispanics, uh, but they are far less likely to be arrested. They are far less likely to be charged with felonies after they've been arrested. They're far less likely to be convicted of felonies after they've been charged with felonies. Uh, once a person has a felony conviction, they often can't vote. They can't get... And so felony convictions have really been a tool used by law enforcement to over communities uh, and really uh, set them up for a sort of permanent economic disadvantage. Uh, and so ending the drug war does not end structural racism. It does not end uh, over policing of minority communities, but it does massively decrease the sort of primary tool they have to target these communities. So we really need to make this part of the Black Lives Matter movement, this idea that the drug war is disproportionately targeting minorities and that ending the drug war can disproportionately benefit them if we do it in the correct way. Uh, in terms of success stories, I think the sort of public acceptance of drug checking has been a major sea change in the United States. Uh, 
when Dan Say first started 20-something years ago, we couldn't even get drug reform organizations to back us because they were convinced that the DEA would use us to target users who were coming to the booth, they would all be arrested, that everyone would go to jail, that it would set the booth. Like, we couldn't even get the, the big drug reform people to back what we were doing. Wow. And now we are in talks with multiple community health clinics, taxpayer-funded community health clinics, about how we can change the law to allow on-site public drop-in drug checking. This is a conversation that's going on in multiple states. Uh, I think within the next two years, we're probably going to have a location somewhere in the United States where it is perfectly legal for a person with drugs. DanceSafe will be the partner organization being funded by the government to test these people's drugs, and then they take their drugs and they leave. Uh, and that's astonishing that we have anyone in the government willing to talk to us about this, right? I mean, uh, we're not there yet, but the fact that anyone's willing to even have the conversation. Uh, we're also moving right now on creating a 50-state plan. Uh, there's about 25 to 30 states where you could argue that test kits may be considered paraphernalia. Uh, nobody has ever been arrested for just a test kit, but if they find the test kit with the other drugs, the baggies and a scale, they will give you three paraphernalia charges, right? Baggie, scale, and test kit. Uh, we've already changed it in Colorado, New Mexico, and Washington, DC. It was actually three different processes in each of those states. Uh, so in one, we created what's called a statutory exemption, where basically if you have a test kit, it's still technically illegal, but if you say this is for harm reduction use, they can't convict you of it. Uh, in Colorado, we actually removed the test analyzed language from the paraphernalia laws. Uh, we actually took that out of the law. They are legal in Colorado now to buy, sell, purchase, distribute legal. Uh, in New Mexico, the, there was a New Mexico reform organization. They actually nuked their paraphernalia laws. Hmm. There are no more paraphernalia laws in New Mexico. Uh, I actually think that's a really clever tactic because it also de facto legalizes uh, safer sorting straws, needles. Uh, it's just another bullshit law that we shouldn't have on the books. And so I actually really like that one. That We couldn't do that in Colorado. We didn't have the backing for it, but uh, so we have a grant right now from the Drug Policy Alliance, and we're creating a 50-state plan, and then we're going to seek out the money to implement that 50-state plan. So that our goal is over the next few years to legalize test kits across the board, 50 states. That way they can be sold on Amazon. Right now, if you put them on Amazon, they just pull your account, and they keep your money, and you know, all those things. Uh, we can't take PayPal because they're technically paraphernalia in California, so PayPal is off the table because you can't use PayPal for drug paraphernalia. Uh, even doing it, Colorado was my first time doing direct lobbying. I loved it. I, I really like convincing politicians to change the law for me. <laughs> so my whole life, my motto has always been, you know, if you have to break the law, don't get caught. Um, I actually like if you have to break the law, change the change law it, better. Yeah. I, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit of a flex. I, I like flexes. Uh, yeah, it's really nice. I mean, we, we have retail locations in Colorado that are going to have refrigerated shelving units with DanceSafe test kits in them. Uh, we have a chain of family pharmacies in New Mexico that are selling DanceSafe test kits. Uh, so you can just go into these pharmacies. Uh, they have the empty bottles on the shelf because they have to be refrigerated. Uh, but you just grab the empty bottles, take them up to the front, and they'll sell you the test kits at these pharmacies. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. That's a, from 20 years ago when DanceSafe was seen as this radical really far out there organization to oh we should be using taxpayer money to do this is such a major change yeah but the reality is every nonprofit's goal should be to solve the problem they are trying to address and put themselves out of business right that's the that's the goal mm. uh drug checking is an incredibly useful harm reduction mitigation service to deal with criminal black markets being the ones in charge of distributing drugs uh, but, but we never know what's coming down the pike we never know what new synthetic opiate is going to be the next one to hit market. Uh, before Sasha passed, actually, at Burning Man, I asked him, uh, with the current rate of how we're banning drugs, how long will it take? How many drugs do we have right now that exist? How long will it take them to make them all illegal? Wow. Uh, and he said, well, ignoring the fact that there's, you know, his, his notes that he finished before he passed away or being published or may have already been published about his like thoughts on future research, right? Nobody's ever messed with the Salvadoran molecule, which is this massive molecule that has lots of replacement places. There's probably hundreds of thousands of drugs we haven't discovered. 
But he said with just the drugs that we've already discovered, we were talking about a maybe 1,500-year process to wow. ban all of them at the current rate that we're banning drugs. So until we end prohibition, until we legalize drugs and legalize the distribution of drugs, uh, DanceSafe is always going to be playing the same game that law enforcement plays, which is keep up with the underground chemists. Mm. It's a game we can't really win. We can only respond. We have to be reflexive and responsive. We can't get out ahead of the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's where it needs to go. Drug checking alone is never going to solve these problems. And I, I, I genuinely believe that. I really, really do believe that we will get there. I think the thing I would leave everyone with is uh, when I was very young, I might have been 12, uh, I went to go see a Holocaust survivor, Alicia Appleman German, speak uh, at the Holocaust Museum in Florida. She wrote this incredible book called Alicia My Story. I mean, literally, like, not just Holocaust survivor, like people on trains on their way to death camps, kicking boards off the train so the children could be shoved through the like little gap on the trains and like running into the Russian forests in the winter, like really survived the, the Holocaust. And one of the things she said that really stuck with me is that every major social movement looks impossible the day before it happens and inevitable the day after it happens. Right? The idea that women would get the vote the day before is impossible and the day after is inevitable. The idea that we would free the slaves by federal fiat is impossible the day before and inevitable the day after. And I really hope that ending the drug war is one of those things, right? Because from a purely policy analysis perspective, it is clearly the right choice to end the drug war, right? The thing that is stopping us is, is a well-funded propaganda machine. If people understood the problems that they associate with drugs are created by drug prohibition. Everyone's going to be on board to end the drug war. So I'm hopeful that this is going to be one of those things that I get to look back at the end of my life and say like, look, of course it was inevitable, right? How could we ever, but it does. It often feels impossible beforehand. So that's how I take my solace. Uh, the, uh, oh, I forget who it was. Some, some old Greek guy in a robe said that, you know, life can only be, or maybe an old French guy in a fancy coat. Some philosopher at some point in history said that, you know, uh, life can, the, the, I think it was something along the lines that, you know, the tragedy is that life can uh, be under, only can, can only be understood backwards, but can only be lived forwards. Uh, right? And so I'm hopeful that looking backwards, uh, we'll see that this was clearly going to happen. This is clearly the, the right choice. Uh, right. But there's a lot of ways to get involved. If you're a student, get involved with Students for Sensible Drug Policy. You know, if you're uh, in part of a music community that uh, has a lot of substance use and you're interested in learning to address that, like the Dance Safe training is online. There's obviously no parties happening right now, but we're still recruiting and training volunteers. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance is an incredible organization. They don't have a ton of volunteer opportunities, but if you really want to see the cutting edge of drug policy, you should definitely follow what DPA is up to. Uh, if you're a cop, uh, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership is a group of law enforcement speaking out against drug prohibition. Uh, LEAP. So they used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Now they're Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So they kept their acronyms in their website, but they got a new, a new name. Uh, no matter where you sit within society, there's ways to move the conversation. And I genuinely think one of the most powerful ones is coming out to your parents as somebody who uses drugs. Uh, I say coming out, I use that language very intentionally. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who are part of the gay rights movement and they're split about whether it's the appropriate language. I have a lot of people who say this is absolutely the same thing. And a lot of people who say this is absolutely not, you should not use it. So. I, I sit in the place that it is the right parallel uh, analysis. It was yeah. never illegal in this country to be gay. It was illegal to be caught performing gay sex acts. And they did all the same things. They kicked down doors. They did stings. They did all the same things. Uh, if you're in a position to be out as a drug user, it's really powerful to have people out there saying, look, I use drugs. I'm okay. This is a good thing. Just don't get caught with the drugs. <laughs> right? You can't get caught <laughs> right. with the thing. Right. But when you have people like Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and, uh, you know, all these people saying, oh, using LSD was this powerful, transformative, amazing experience, uh, it does help. And I really encourage people to do it.
Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the earliest realizations I had when I started smoking pot was uh, I, I kind of coined this, uh, this slogan, advertise it, legalize it. Because w one thing I noticed was that yeah. you know, before I started smoking pot and hanging out with people who did and hearing about the people who did, I had the same stigma in my mind that, you know, this was a very like rare thing. This was a thing that is, uh, you know, normal people don't do. Um, and so the more you can right. like, normalize it, the more you can sort of come out about your drug use, like you said, to your family, um, to your friends, maybe even to coworkers, if that's appropriate, um, the more you can counter that, like you said, the propaganda yeah. machine that is really perpetuating this whole thing. So advertise it, legalize yeah. it, tell everybody uh, that you like to, you know, use heroin or use LSD or whatever it is and uh, just ma make it part of the normal conversation. That's a great tip, great advice. And, and, you know, for most of human history, this was the norm, right? Uh, I think the thought I'd like to leave everyone with is that if you look at human history as a 200,000 year process stretching back to the, you know, uh, stretching back to the uh, ravines in Africa where we first evolved as an anatomically modern species, the norm is drugs being integrated in society, not drugs being banned by society. That is broadly the historical norm. Uh, Ending drug prohibition is not a radical proposition. Banning drugs was the radical proposition. Right. And so what we need is a return to normalcy, a return to integration, and a return to where people can make the decisions about their own minds and bodies. Because ultimately, either we own our own minds and bodies, or we are owned by the government. And I just fundamentally will not be owned. <laughs> I just, hmm. uh, as a human being, refuse that, that prospect. Uh, and so, yeah, what I'd really like is a return to normalcy. <laughs> Nice, nice. I think we can all agree on that. Well, Mitchell, it's been great talking to you, and uh, yeah. thanks for you know keeping up this good fight. It's amazing how many fronts there are in this in this war. You know, being as as one of the uh, the the good team here, who's uh, countering this uh, crazy prohibition that we're going through for the last you know number of decades, and a return to normalcy is exactly what this world needs. And I'm talking about a return to normalcy going back hundreds of years probably thousands of years not a return to like two years ago because that was also pretty abnormal in the grand scheme of things so uh thank yeah you let me let me actually show you guys something while i have you hold on hold yeah please yeah let me let me show you guys something really really quickly hold on I'll take two seconds oh cool okay So these are uh, little clay statues from the uh, shaft tomb culture in Mexico. These are roughly 2,000 years old. Uh, oh, you wow. can see these are little mushroom shamans. They're each holding, actually holding one mushroom and shoving another in his mouth, which I feel with my soul, you know, the <laughs> yeah. double fisting of the mushrooms. Um, nice. And so, yeah, these are, uh, you know, over 2,000 year old uh, little effigies of people just like eating mushrooms as a normal integrated part of their society. And, uh, that's that's the historical norm. That's just an undeniable reality. Yeah, in many ways, I feel like a return to that norm would also unlock a lot of the, uh, the you know, the, the rest of the, the the trouble with society. I mean, I think yeah, it would couldn't be, agree more. Really be be like a, a wedge for everything else. So um, yeah, what we have in this what we have in this world is not a, a resource deficit. It's an empathy deficit. Uh, and I really uh, think that psychedelics, MDMA in particular, those substances uh, can really teach us how to be a sort of healthier species on this planet uh, because we really are quite uh, disconnected from the rest of the world right now. Yeah. Uh, and high doses of psychedelics are nothing if not internally connecting. <laughs> so. Right on. <laughs> totally. Word. Amen. Amen. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's great. Well, it's good chat with been, you guys. Yeah. This yeah, is great. Thanks for Yeah. A pleasure. An absolute pleasure. Yeah. Have a good Everybody, night. Uh, yeah. Listeners check out dancesafe.org and thank you again, Mitchell, for everything you do. Much appreciated. Yeah. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again.